Mike, a round of applause for that reading, don't you think? <laughs> well done, Mike. Well done, Mike. It was a long one, 66 verses. Well, there have been many books that have been formative for me. Um, books on Bible, theology, biographies, literature, leadership, novels, poems, topical books, commentaries, to name a few. Lots have been informative for me. No doubt you've got your own list of books that have been most informative as well. There's one book in particular, though, that's had a great impact on me, and it's quite different in nature to all the others. Uh, it isn't about success or brilliance or achievement. It isn't long. It isn't read that widely, except for by Christians. Um, it's written, actually, by a Roman Catholic um, uh, priest named Henri Nguyen. A brilliant man from the Netherlands who completed six years of theology as a part of becoming a priest and then a doctorate in theology and psychology and clinical pastoral education. And then during the course of his education, he got involved in the US civil rights movement and went on to a professorship at the Pontifical University in Rome and then Yale and then Harvard. So you understand he's a brilliant person and the top universities of the world wanted a piece of him. However, being so brilliant in, at writing and, and thinking, he actually found his deepest calling and meaning one time on a trip to a small French community called La Arche. And while on that trip, uh, he, a, 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 a little community that, that, that focuses on living in community and bringing dignity and love to folks with severe and significant disabilities. Well, while on a trip to a wedding in Toronto, he was staying with another Liash community when their leader of that community in Canada was tragically killed in a motor accident That's, and, 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 and greatly, uh, sorry, wasn't killed, was greatly injured. And so that community asked Henri to be their pastor and he accepted. And he was paired, as the way that Liash communities operate, he was paired with a man with profound development disabilities, a man named Adam, who Henri would write in one of his books, it is I, not Adam, who gets the main benefit from our friendship. He even wrote a book about Adam called Adam, God's Beloved. And Henri Nguyen's little but profound book, The Wounded Healer, is one of those books I'm referring to that's been very significant for me with its impact, and it's impacted many millions of other people too. In this little book, Nguyen affirms that each of us can use our own experiences of woundedness to help other wounded souls. He goes on and he also warns that we need to be careful and not pick up um, the harm that can, we can be infected by other people's wounds as well. Um, so he's definitely not Pollyanna about this. But he explores this principle and it's a principle that's quite similar to what also Alcoholics Anonymous explore. When they say to someone, they say about someone who knows the depths of what alcohol addiction can do, they say sayings like this, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life so worthwhile to us now. They also say, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness to others. If this line from Henri Nguyen or from Alcoholics Anonymous is, seems familiar, it is. It's rooted deeply in the Christian scriptures. Have a listen to what Isaiah himself said in a similar era to when Lamentations was written. Isaiah said in chapter 53, 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace on, was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah was speaking about a suffering servant who then Peter identified as Jesus in 1 Peter 2.24. When Peter wrote these words, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds we have been healed we'll come back to this more fully as we proceed through lamentations but for now hold the idea that your pain your woundedness your trauma may be able to assist someone else and as horrid as that wound and trauma might be and as much as you don't want it it still might be able to bring about good for someone else there's an anonymous saying well i couldn't find who it was attributed to it says when you can't look on the bright side i'll sit with you in the dark i will be there this is the third of our five poems as we're touring through this ancient book of lamentations and as yet as i've been surveying around friends and colleagues i still haven't found anyone who's done a series on it so we're breaking ground uh, here at mitcham uh, and this is the third of the five poems we're halfway through the book of lamentations in our first week we looked at chapter one or poem one and looked at the setting and the context of this ancient book and then last week in chapter two we paralleled it with the grief cycle of elizabeth kubler ross um, and we saw how lamentations revealed the grief cycle 2500 years before modern science discovered it interestingly lamentations is set in the midst the ruin and the destruction of the people of judah while kubler ross's work also emerged out of the destruction and horror that jewish people suffered as well through the atrocities of world war ii and now we enter poem three, chapter three. As we've progressed, I've deliberately not got you too bogged down in all of the form and the structure of these chapters, that what's going on in a literary sense. I've just told you that there are acrostic patterns there and each verse is aligned with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, but as you look at it, in the last two chapters, there were 22 verses. And each verse was a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is why there were 22 verses. Um, in chapters 1, 2, as well as chapters 4 and 5, have 22 verses, and they follow that pattern. But here, in chapter 3, there's an entirely different structure. And for starters, it's got 66 verses, which was why Mike's reading was, seemed so long, but was actually no different to the length of the reading that Christine read last week. It was the same word count, but a different structure of verses. We don't need to go into all of the detail about this literary structure, but a careful reader, a careful Jewish or Christian reader, will draw, be drawn to the fact that there is a pattern here. And if you dig a little further, you'll see in your Bible that these verses are ordered in groups of three. There's a stanza that has three verses, then there's a little break, and then another stanza of three verses, then a little break, all the way through in, up to verse 66. What's happening here gets missed when the Hebrew is translated into English. What's actually going on here, if you could read your Hebrews, you would see that the poet has actually starts each stanza with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 
but he does it three times. So verses 1, 2, 3 all start with A. Um, verses 4, 5, 6 all start with B, all the way through to verse 66. So instead of 22 verses, there's 66 verses, and instead of just going 1 through to... Uh, to, to a, a through to whatever Z is in Hebrew. I don't know in the Hebrew. Um, instead, he does it three times. And so there's three A's, three B's, all the way through in the Hebrew alphabet. So one of the commentators says this about the patterns. Then we'll leave it. But it's important for you to understand. It's like in modern language, it's like if someone was sending something to you and they've put it in capital letters and they've made it bold and they've made it a bigger font. They're trying to get your attention with something compared to the way it's normally expressed. One of the um, commentators I've been reading in this series says, the more intensive acrostic form and the new way of numbering in chapter 3 bear witness to the special role that the third poem chapter has in the book. It functions as a rhetorical climax. It's bringing emphasis. It reinforces the totality of suffering, once more using predominantly the funeral dirge in the Hebrew to emphasise his position. The poem has been artistically highlighted to advance its content, which takes it substantially beyond the concerns expressed in the book so far. It's getting deeper, it's getting harder, it's getting more reflective. And the acrostic patterns are all about emphasising that. Okay, so I don't want to turn this into a Bible college lecture. That could easily happen and um, that's actually not why we're here. But I just want to give you enough to let you know there's a whole lot going on here in what's being emphasised. I've just stressed a little bit of information so that you know that there's something going on. There are five sections in Lamentations 3. And there's a slide that um, Philip will pop up on the, on the overhead to show you. Verses 1 through 16 is a message of a testimony to personal suffering. And then he goes on to having second thoughts and reflecting deeper into this suffering. And then the testimony of the wounded healer. And then there's a call to the congregation, to us, to the reader, to prayer and repentance. And then finally the testimony of the wounded healer is repeated. That's the pattern that we're going to follow through this morning and will make it make a lot more sense. Without that kind of structure and commentary on the way through, it's really hard to hear 66 verses just read. You, you pull out the odd verse that has some meaning, you think you understand a bit, and then you kind of get lost again and you're going, where's it going? When there's actually five kind of sections or chapters on the way through this chapter and there's a sequential argument. So follow me. The, verse, the first section... Uh, verses 1 to 16, is all about a testimony to personal suffering. Here, our poet continues his experience that we've been hearing in chapters 1 and 2, but now he adds his own personal suffering into the account. Everything's personalised, and it will be for a reason that you will see. Have a listen to the way he starts. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. On the, on the, by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He reports his situation and how bad it is personally right through to verse 16. This isn't about Jerusalem. This isn't cosmic anymore. That's all going on, we know, from chapters 1 and 2. He's now letting us know his own personal circumstances. 
We don't have time to reread everything, but you'll see on the next slide I've pulled up some of the highlights or the examples of his suffering. Verse 4, he's experienced, um, he has made my skin and my flesh grow old and broken my bones. He's besieged and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. I was walled in, I couldn't escape, I was in chains, I was barred with blocks of stone. It's not good. This is his own personal experience of this devastating blow to Jerusalem. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart and arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of people. He's filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. It is truly a horrendous experience for our poet who we are reading. These are the things going on in his misery. And he's letting us know that He's not just an objective reporter who's writing a scene for the newspaper and reporting it to us, but he's personally up to his neck in this tragedy, the trauma of Jerusalem. And to him, God's intervention feels like a blowtorch rather than a helping hand. He uses concepts of God's action in him like rod and heavy hand and arrow to describe what it feels like. He's in darkness And he's in misery and that's his testimony. It took years, a long time for Kim and myself to have children and start our family. Years of trying. Miscarriages, failed attempts through IVF. Eight long years of dashed hopes. It was a long and it was a lonely journey. And we wondered if it would ever yield the two of us, our children and family. You have to go through that sort of experience personally to understand what it's like or you can't understand. And there are other examples of we all carry in life that are relative. And the worst thing that someone can say to you in the midst of that journey is, I know how you feel, unless they really do. And then they're welcome And their suffering experience, and therefore their empathy, can become a deep understanding balm to you in your lostness and pain. But you have to have gone through something parallel, whether it's all sorts of things, and sickness and illness and suffering and tragedy and trauma, whether it's financial, whether it's health. So many examples. You can't understand what it's like unless you understand what it's like. This is what our reporter on the scene in Jerusalem is doing. He's assuring us that he's been through a similar experience of suffering. So we are going to be able to benefit from his experience and move through the rest of the chapter with him. I saw this um, this week from a friend whose father had passed away just last week. She wrote, she put up this post, Grief, I've learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All of that unspent love gathers in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, the hollow in the part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. Section 1. The next section in this, this, this chapter is verses 17 through 24. Our poet, our reporter is having second thoughts and he's reflecting deeper on what's going on out of his personal circumstances. 
Verse 17, he, he reflects that he has been deprived of peace and forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I'd hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them. My soul is downcast within me. It's very bad. Actually, to say it's very bad is understating things for him. It could not be worse. He thinks about the depression that he's in, the sinking pit. He starts to go into that place of hopelessness and bitterness. And you can feel yourself being pulled with him as we've recounted how bad it is for him. And then he remembers something. He draws on something and he writes this. And yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, in the midst of this context, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. He does not dare to judge or chastise those who for good reason are in a deep depression. He gets it. He empathises. He's in the same place and acknowledges the validity and truth and the reality of their experience. But because he's in a depression, he's able to reflect personally on the situation and draw meaningful truth out of it that is valid, that no one else can take away from him. He does not express this truth to judge or condemn. He does not express this truth to big note himself or to boast. We've already seen here that there's nothing to boast about in this situation. But our poet does have one thing. Our reporter does have one thing. There's one thing in this dire situation that he can call to mind that will save him. People are welcome to reject his words or accept them for themselves. But they cannot deny his conviction or the validity of his conclusion from his experience because it is his experience. Building on the Lord as opposed to building on shifting sands is solid rock. That is his conclusion. Words that our Lord Jesus will say years to come. Despite the situation in God... And as Christians, we would say, in Christ who is God, we can have second thoughts. We can have hope. I trust this is comforting, friends, in your circumstances, whatever they are, wherever they are, wherever you have been. I trust this brings maybe a crack of light to your darkness. And remember, suffering's not a competition Whatever you're enduring is whatever you're enduring. And that's the intended message of this ancient book. He moves to the next section, section C or the third section. The testimony of the wounded healer, built on the hope of God in the trust, steadfastness and the trust of God's compassion and mercies that are new every morning. He's able to move forward. And guess what? He becomes a preacher. He starts 
preaching his message in the midst of this devastation, buoyed by his own personal revelation of the Lord's great love and that his compassions never fail and are new every morning and great is his faithfulness, our writer here starts to proclaim the good news. In verse 25, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. This section right here in the middle of chapter 3 is a sermon filled with a series of persuasive arguments centred on the justice and mercy of God that builds towards where we're going is a call to prayer and repentance in the fourth section that we'll come to soon. Listen to his sermon as he goes through that Mike read to us. I'll just skim through it. Verse 28, Let him sit alone in silence for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust that there may be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice. Would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it, who, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? What should the reaction of the people be to this message? How should he apply his testimony and sermon? Certainly not by denying the real circumstances that they find themselves in. Remember, they're selling anything they can find to eke out a meal for their family who's left. Their misfortunes are not counter to the purposes of God. They do not have to fudge things to make the faith look inviting to others. No. In the midst of their trials, indeed especially because of their trials, our poet, reporter, now preacher reflects, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is his deep and abiding reflection and hinge moment in his life and in his theology. Their path to a better future lies not in discounting God. God is the source of their hope and they should go directly to him. Which begins the fourth section, verses 40 to 51. A call for the people, a call for Jerusalem, a call for us to prayer and repentance. It's a message that Jerusalem needed to hear. It's a message that we need to hear in 2023. Turn back to God. Repent, which means do a 180 degree turn and change your ways. Come back to God. He says in verse 40, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to God. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, let us confess we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. 
That is the state that they are in and they need to repent. The word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. It has two parts. Meta means change and noia means mind. Change your mind. Turn around. Do 180 degrees. The prophets had already been calling for it from Jerusalem. We read that from Jeremiah and Isaiah. And now the reporter, our poet, our reporter, our writer of Lamentations is in the midst of the devastation on the field. And he's concluded the only way forward is prayer and repentance. When you're in a bad spot, you have to start by admitting the spot that you're in. Naming and accepting that there is a problem is the wisest part to it. And as we looked at the grief cycle, our natural response is one of denial. That's often where it starts. You have to get to acceptance before you can move forward. Owning it. And I can say this as I reflect back on many staff who I've managed in various capacities over the years, that the best staff I've ever supervised are not the high star performers who hit the ball out of the park and can do no wrong and, and high performers. Sure, that's a joy at times, but often they're the ones who also have egos and need constant massaging of their egos. The team member who has always, for me, been a joy to manage in whatever capacity I've been in has been the team member who is humble and teachable and who tells the truth. And if they're not very good at something, they come and tell you where it's at. They don't fudge along and, and, and you know where you're at and you can work on a plan. Which, by the way, is all the staff at NBC. They're all wonderful and they're humble and we all work together. Alcoholics Anonymous has the famous 12-step program of rebuilding lives and it starts with step one. We admit that we're powerless over alcohol. Alcohol being the case for Alcoholics Anonymous, but you can apply this to anything. We admit that we're powerless over alcohol that our lives have become unmanageable. It starts with admittance and acceptance. The way forward in anything starts with admitting the problem. And that's the conclusion of our poet here. We've got a problem, Jerusalem, and we need to admit it. So we've gone through four sections and we come to the fifth section, the final section in this long reading that I hope is not taking too long to move through as we, as we preach through it. Verses 52 to 66, where our wounded healer comes back again to his testimony and repeats it. Our poet reminds us again where he is at, where Jerusalem is at, where I'm at, where you're at. He's in a depression, he's in a pit, and the only way out is through admitting his situation and his need for God. And it all hinges on him finding out that because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait in him. It all hinges on that revelation of the deeper understanding of the nature of God. As you read through this fifth section, you hear the situation summarised again. We know how bad it is. But by admitting the situation and turning to repentance, a forward way is able to be opened. He at least now has a compass and he knows where true north is. 
Because he's found God and he's found hope and he's found mercy. This chapter 3 of Lamentations, friends, is a chapter for wounded healers. People who know the reality of their own pain in life, their trauma, their dashed dreams, their darkness, whatever they have been through or are going through. But people who are prepared to start the long climb out of that slump, that depression, that pit, through trust in God's faithfulness and a willingness to offer their very wounds, their own scars, as a balm to others who might need the support of their experience. The poet teaches us that we pull one another out of this pit together in community. This story is a true story from a well-known blogger and I just thought it's just, it makes the example so well I thought I'd read it to you. I walked in for my haircut and immediately sensed something was off. A layer of desolation hung in the air like an invisible mist, ominous and untouchable, yet so thick I felt as though I could reach out and grab a handful in my fist, like wet cement oozing out between my fingers. I'd been seeing the same hairdresser once a month for three years. The appointment, this appointment started like any other, except this time I was greeted by an overwhelming sense of sorrow spilling out of the room with a vengeance and as if it had been trapped for decades. Standing in place of my hairdresser friend was a lifeless hollow shell of a person with empty zombie eyes. I hardly recognised her. Jen, not her real name, was clearly not her usual self. I've seen her in bad moods throughout the years, but this was beyond moods, and bad was too kind a word. Like me, Jen's an introverted, sensitive soul, and neither of us has a tolerance for inauthenticity and meaningless chit-chat. We had long established that she didn't have to be perfect around me, and that she was allowed to take off her professional mask, and I my client mask, and we could simply be ourselves with each other neither of us having to endure the torture of polite pleasantries if we didn't feel like it. One of my pet peeves is society's constant pressure and expectation to put on a happy face and pretend everything's okay while inside things are desperately broken. So I said hi and walked in, neither expecting a return hi nor receiving one. I wanted to respect the moment, even though I didn't understand it. Ten minutes in, between deep, long strokes through my hair, I heard a soft, almost inaudible, I lost the girls. Jen had been pregnant with twin girls. I remember the day she told me. She could barely wait for me to get through the door before blurting out, I'm pregnant. She and her husband had been trying to get pregnant for a while and finally, she was not only pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. And now she wasn't anymore. I sunk into the chair as the enormity of what she said dropped into me. And then I started to get up and tell her that she didn't have to do my hair. We could talk if she wanted, or she could take the extra time to herself. I'd still pay her. She gently nudged my shoulder back down and said she needed to work. It kept her mind from self-destructing. She told me that her soul had been emptied along with her womb and that there was nothing left, let alone tears, inside her. I had enough tears for both of us in that moment, so I told her that I'd cry for her, for her girls, for her loss. 
And for the next 45 minutes, as she didn't do much hair, I released tears, wails and guttural sobs. It came and it went in waves and I became acutely aware of the rhythm of her breathing as it converged with mine and became one. You see, I've had the experience of late-term miscarriage myself. Between waves, there were moments of talking. Like with me, she had, had met many of her clients with the exciting news that she was pregnant and like with me, she was also now having to tell them that she was no longer pregnant. Client after client, spread out over weeks, she had to repeat the same story over and over until every client knew who had been caught up. She said her days have been filled with well-intentioned but stale advice, like everything happens for a reason and they're in a better place now and you'll get pregnant again. She told me each time she heard these statements, it felt like another jab in her weary stomach. She didn't care about getting pregnant again, better places or higher reasons. When a mother's unborn babies have been ripped away from her, no reason could ever make it right. She wasn't in the headspace to feel better or think of a brighter future. She simply wanted to be acknowledged for the pain she was going through now. But no one had remained with her in the pain. They'd all tried to make her feel better, which only made her feel worse. In our own discomfort or feeling painful emotions, we try to help others not feel theirs. It's difficult for us to see someone we love suffering and naturally our first impulse is to try and make it go away, whether it's through reason, logic, distraction, faith or any other means. We feel helpless, so desperately we reach for what we know, what we've been taught, what others have done to us in our moments of suffering. We offer trite words that deep down we know won't help but we hold on to the hope that they will anyway because we don't know what else to do or say. The more powerful choice is to simply be with someone, accepting and embracing the painful moment as is, without trying to fix or make it better. It goes against our natural urge to want to help, but often this present moment acceptance of the deep emotions flowing through a person is exactly what they need to help them move through it in their own time. As powerful as it is to shine a light for someone who's ready to emerge, it's equally powerful to sit with them in the darkness until they're ready. After the session, Jen told me she felt relief for the first time since it happened, as if some weight had been lifted from her. She hadn't realised it, but with each client, friend and loved one who tried to make her feel better, she felt a mounting sense of pressure to feel better, as if there was something even more wrong with her for not being able to. She hadn't been conscious of the constant pressure she was under in our grief session when she was finally allowed to feel exactly as she'd been feeling and was fully accepted in her pain. Stepping into the hallway and turning back for a long melting hug, I sensed a profound shift in her energy, vastly different to when I'd walked in 45 minutes ago. She was still wounded, but there was an element of acceptance in her pain, a faint glow of light within the darkness. This sacred healing light only comes as a result of fully embracing the darkness. It can't be forced, manipulated or pushed into existence. This is the true power of accepting our own deep pain 
and sitting with someone in the dark as they feel theirs. Only then are you ready to find the deepest truth about God. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Let's pray. Loving God, in the holiness and the reverence of this moment, we acknowledge that in a room of this size, with our ages and our backgrounds and our experiences, we carry pain and trauma from a diversity of experiences across our lives, dashed hopes, things that haven't gone the way we expected, wounds, pain, loss, grief, a list too long to adequately name. But we thank you, Lord, that we can turn to you and that you can be there for us and that you can be that crack of hope that can keep us going in the midst of our pit. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of this ancient saint who wrote this 2,500 years ago. In the midst of his own grief and trauma and loss and pain, in the midst of the loss of his beloved city and his people, he was still able to turn to you and help us learn to turn to you in the midst of our own life's journey. Help us go easy and carefully this week, Lord, as we continue to process the message of Lamentations into chapter 4 next Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name.